Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Does the Bible condone war? Now, this is a question that I think has always been relevant, and I think that there is some unique relevance today, being that at the time that I am recording this episode, there is currently conflict going on between the nation of Israel and the terrorist organization called Hamas. Now, I'm coming from America, but I do think it's a worldwide phenomenon how divided people are over this conflict going on, and certainly I don't think there's an innocent side to the conflict. I do think that it displeases me, and it is wrong, that children have to die in the midst of war. I think that terrorist organizations who want entire people groups wiped off the face of the earth because of their race and nationality is also wrong. And so as a Christian, we find ourselves, as Christians have always found themselves, in the middle of this this idea of a just war, or is all war unjust? It, it's it's this, this question of whether or not taking up arms and killing someone when the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 clearly says, thou shalt not murder. So, so it's the question of if killing someone in war is murdering them, is breaking that commandment. Certainly as an American, I am predispositioned, as many in the Western culture are also predispositioned, to really not like killing, really not like the act of ending another life. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, uh, my wife and I were hanging out after Christmas and decided to throw on a movie, and we were strolling through Disney+, and we came across Bambi, and I'm not ashamed to admit that we turned on Bambi, both of us saying, wow, we have not seen this movie in forever. And of course, there's that there's that dramatic scene in Bambi where Bambi's mom gets shot by the hunter, and you know the, the old wise deer says, men have entered the forest. And then the, the end climax is... You know, men entering the forest again with their dogs, and they ultimately burn the forest and chase the creatures out, and they have to fight for the survival. And, and, and there's, there's a Bambi sense in Western culture that when bad men enter and war breaks out, it's going to kill and destroy and burn down everything. Life as we know it, just gone, erased. But do know that that's not the world. Do know that not every single person in the world sees killing as wrong see Hamas, as I referenced earlier in this episode. But they're, but they're not the only ones. There certainly is, especially in Islam, in the Quran, there's this idea of a jihad, which is a word that just means a holy war. And a holy war is none other than just a justified war, a war in the name of religion, a war because your God said go to war, said kill these people. And so we as Western Christians are above that, right? We think that our God is loving and wants none to perish, but everyone to live. Because, well, that's in the Bible. The Bible says that God desires none should perish, but all should receive everlasting life. But there's some problems, though, that we get to when we get to the book of Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. And then if you're Catholic, you have the Maccabees. And then there's this weird thing in the book of Acts 
where God smites Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, and he's the one that does the killing. But as I just mentioned in those other few books, David, the judges, the, the armies of Israel, even the prophet Samuel himself kill in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even before those books, there's Joshua. The Israelites are commanded to go take the land of Canaan from the Canaanites. They first enter into Jericho, where they encounter Rahab the harlot, and she hangs the starlet thread outside the window, and she's spared, but everyone else in Jericho is massacred. And then everyone in Ai is massacred, and this is what God commanded. And this was after receiving the Ten Commandments, but even before receiving the Ten Commandments. God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah. God wipes out the entire world, save for Noah, in a flood. And when Pharaoh won't listen to God, God kills the firstborn of everyone in the land, Egyptian or Hebrew, that doesn't put the blood of a lamb on top of a doorpost. So what gives? Is God a hypocrite? Is there a just war? Is the Bible unfair? Is God unfair? I think we're living in a time of moral relativism that is so deeply influenced and ingrained into our culture that the answer to those questions for you might be yes. And so I want to be sensitive, actually, in answering this one, because they might be yes because you're not thinking. And hear me out, and I'm not trying to insult you here, but at least just hear me out for the purposes of having this conversation. I don't think you're thinking big enough, but you have to understand that until you've lived in other cultures and seen other horrors, your conception of right and wrong is a lot of this pleases me and this displeases me. And that's complete moral relativism. It's very uncomfortable, unsettling, and unpleasurable to watch wrong happen. And I think that in order to bring some of this stuff, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, all of these people groups that God commanded the Israelites to kill in the Old Testament, I think we have to look at Nazi Germany through our modern eyes and think about that. So the answer might be maybe, that maybe the Bible condones war under the absolute right circumstances. Because my thought is, and as some of you know from listening to this podcast, one of my absolute heroes of the faith is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You see, he was a man who lived in Germany during World War I, during the great economic uncertainty of Germany that followed World War I, and got to watch firsthand Hitler's rise to power. And Hitler's rise to control the masses of people to alienate, subjugate, and ultimately exterminate Jews, Christians, homosexuals, and anyone who was not full Aryan-German race. Now, Bonhoeffer was fortunate, actually. Before the mass exodus of those kinds of peoples into concentration camps began, Bonhoeffer escaped Germany and found himself in Canada. However, Bonhoeffer felt like God called him back to Germany. And he did. He went back to Germany, planted an underground church. He got busted by the Nazi SS police. And just a few months before World War II ended, Heinrich Himmler, Hitler's right-hand man, ordered the execution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, he loved his fellow inmates and even the guards so well that his writings all got smuggled out of a Nazi concentration camp, and they're some of the most beautiful Christian writings that the world has ever seen and ever known. And if you read anything of his, the cost of discipleship is the most beautiful exposition of the Sermon on the Mount you can ever come across. 
So shameless plug over. But if I were a Christian during the time of World War II, I would ask myself, do I love Germans? Does God want me to love Germans? Does God want me to love Nazis? And the answer would be yes. God does want me to love Germans and love Nazis. And so my love for Germans and Nazis would cause me, let's, let's say I live in England, my love for them would cause me to stay home and pray for them, to pray for the redemption and the mental healing of their country. But I would also have to ask myself, does God want me to love Jewish people and Christians and those who would identify as homosexual living in Germany? And the answer would also be yes, God does want me to love those people. But my love for those people should drive me to pick up a rifle, join the British Army, and go defend them. Because they are the ones that the evil is being committed against. So maybe there's a justification for war. When innocent people, and of course when I say innocent, I mean relatively innocent. Innocent in comparison to the atrocities of Nazi guards and soldiers and Hitler himself. But when innocent people are being brutally murdered and tortured and raped and pillaged, maybe my love for them should supersede my love for the torturers and the rapists and the murderers and the pillagers. And that superseding of that love should cause me to defend, put my own life on the line, even doing so to the point of killing the offenders. So with that in mind, I think we can look back at the Canaanites I think we can look back at everyone who died in the flood that's referenced in Genesis chapter 7, that a man named Noah builds a giant ark, a giant boat to save his family from. I think we can look at the death of the Egyptian firstborn, which I'll get to that in a second. I think we can look at the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, maybe from a different lens. You see, we have archaeological evidence We have bibliographical evidence, which is to say manuscript and scroll and carving evidence that there were worship systems in these cultures. And I referenced this a little bit in the last episode, which was a little bit of a silly episode about the Christmas tree. But hey, I've been on this train of thought for a minute now, so (laughs) forgive me for that. But there's evidence that there's worship practices of these cultures to enslave, kill children, rape women, various other atrocities in the name of their worship practice. Because it's no secret that there are religions that condone war. I mentioned the Quran just a minute ago. The Quran literally condones war. Jihad is a God-ordained war. But I think that the contexts within those are different, right? Because where jihad calls for complete murder and annihilation of anyone who has, is of a Jewish descent, anyone who practices Christianity, anyone who practices homosexuality, just needs to be wiped out simply for their practice just needs to be wiped out simply for their race, just needs to be wiped out simply for their religious beliefs. I think we see something different in the Bible. In the land of Canaan, for instance, God gives the Canaanites somewhere between, it's estimated, eight and 900 years to change their ways before sending the Israelites in to completely annihilate them. Because it's striking, because when you compare Israel's journey into the land of Canaan, When you compare all all the tribes, Exodus from Egypt and journey into Canaan, there's war and there's bloodshed. But when you compare Israel's journey into Egypt in Genesis, when there's a famine and Joseph becomes the the second pharaoh in command, it's as if Israel has this ruling power in Egypt that is just the Egyptians lovingly handed over to them because they love Joseph so much, because Pharaoh loves Joseph so much, because he saved the world. And so you have to think, 
Why doesn't God do that again with the Canaanites? Clearly Jericho is a massive city. Like those walls are impossible to knock down. And so if God has to do something that seems silly and weird to us, they march around it seven times and they blow their trumpet seven times and the walls come crumbling down. Like it takes, it takes a divine act to actually bring these walls down. So Canaan's not a weak nation by any means. At the, the first time the Israelites face the city of Ai, they get defeated. And many Israelites die. And part of that's because of the sin of Achan, that he took the treasure he wasn't supposed to take, if you're familiar with the book of Joshua. And if you're not, well, go look it up, so I'm not going to explain it here. But you have to ask, why couldn't God do the Egyptian thing again? Why couldn't God send an Israelite in that all the Canaanites would love, and they would just give him the power? He clearly did it with Joseph, and that's just the weirdest freaking story from slave prisoner to Pharaoh number two. Like, if this is the God that can create everything and nothing's impossible for him, why didn't he do that with the Canaanites? Why did he choose to allow the Israelites to go in, wage war with the Canaanites, and his intent was for the Israelites to annihilate them? Now, the Israelites disobeyed and didn't annihilate all of them, and that came back to bite them in the butt later in Joshua and Judges, and even in First and Second Samuel. And then you, <laughs> you'd get in the book of Esther, and, and Haman is a, is a descent of, an, of the Ammonites, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, feel free to, because I don't have every inch of the Bible memorized, and that's okay. But, like, it bites them in the butt that they don't obey God and wipe out everyone in the land of Canaan. And yet, I think that's because of the wickedness of Canaan. And I think this brings me to the death of the firstborn in Egypt. That this whole Passover celebration, which ultimately foreshadows Christ, can we be real, centers on what kind of seems like the unjust killing of an innocent child, of innocent children in every single household. The death of the firstborn child of every Egyptian and Hebrew who doesn't put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost? Just because Pharaoh, the tyrannical corrupt leader, won't let the Israelites go. Like, picture the worst president you can think of. I don't know if that's, you know, Trump, Biden, whatever, right? Like, just whichever one you hate the most, he makes a decision that is cruel, right? To continue to enslave people. And it affects not you, but other people. And, and sure, maybe they're a lower class of citizens, right? Like, like the Israelites were, were shepherds. And for Egyptians, shepherds weren't even allowed to like enter kind of the normal society. They were dirty. They were unclean. So, you know, whatever. Maybe some corrupt, tyrannical ruler like enslaves plumbers or something. I, I don't know. Whatever you think is beneath you, even though like plumbers are awesome and everyone needs them and they probably make a lot more money than most of us. Not the point. Anyway. Some corrupt, tyrannical ruler enslaves some people group that you see as dirty, and you get punished for it. Seems a little weird, doesn't it? Well, think about it. Think about it bigger, right? Think about the Nazis. It's interesting. If you go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., there's a hall of heroes. And I love this hall of heroes. It's small. It's smaller than you would think it would be for an entire nation and, and, and an entire, I mean, continent even, because it's all across Europe, but of, of these people that stepped in and risked their lives and, and hid Jewish people and hid Christians in their attics and their basements and their walls, and they risked everything, and they lied to Nazi guards, and, and, and there's just some beautiful stories that come out of that. But it's, when you count the numbers, it's small. It's a minority that there were a lot of Germans that were either okay with what was going on or at least turned a blind eye to it. And that's really easy to do. And if I had to guess, I would say there are probably a lot of Egyptians that were okay with what was going on or at least turned a blind eye to it. And so maybe not everyone's fully innocent, but, but the other reality is, is that your sin affects everybody. That someone else's sin affects everybody. If you've ever gone to therapy and worked through 
your your child upbringing issues, you know that the sins of the father do affect the son. You know that that the sins of your parents, that maybe you're not completely held guilty for them, you're not held responsible for them, but they have lasting ramifications that can last your entire life, maybe how you treat your kids, generations and generations, and it takes work to break those. It takes killing and forgiving through sessions, through whatever, to break those things. And it's not like that killing and forgiving that that Passover lamb and blood on the doorpost wasn't offered to the Egyptians. It was, right? Exodus says whoever had the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, their firstborn would be spared. And so it is in war. And I don't like it. And you shouldn't like it. You'd be a sadist if you liked it. If you liked that innocent people suffered in war, that's sadistic. But your sin doesn't happen in isolation. My sin doesn't happen in isolation. Hitler's sin doesn't happen in isolation. It affects everything. It's like when you throw a pebble in a lake. It ripples out and out and out, and the circles get bigger and bigger and bigger the further out it goes. So should we never have war again? Absolutely. <laughs> I would love to never see a war again. I would love to have everlasting peace and, 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 and a ruler that was just and... And that's what heaven and revelation is described about. And one day the Bible says that'll happen. But in the meantime, very evil people are living. And very evil people are going to continue to do very evil sins. And those very evil sins are going to ripple outward and outward and outward and outward and outward. And if you don't stop it and confront the evil, it's just going to ripple into everyone and everything. And that's the flood. That's the story of Noah. Until one day the evil is so great that there's no good. And when there's no good, no one can survive that. C.S. Lewis kind of talks about a similar thing in his book, The Abolition of Man, that if we continue just to pursue our scientific advancement and, and genetic control and AI, and he didn't really mention AI because the book was written in the 40s, but the idea is there, the philosophy is there, that if we continue to reduce everything to over-engineering and reducing man to nature, that nature will ultimately conquer man, and the abolition of man will be our very last scientific endeavor. Well, I think it's the same thing with evil. If you allow evil to continue to reduce humanity and community and culture, because it will unless you confront it, and if you allow it to continue to do so, it ultimately just destroys everything. It burns the entire forest, as Bambi so eloquently <laughs> demonstrated in the movie. That unless you take up arms against Hitler, the psychotic maniac will end up killing us all in the end. And I, I think I'm constructing this view, at least I hope I'm constructing this view, out of the biblical text. Maybe. I think something else to consider is that whether or not religion or the Bible condones or commands or anything, even talks about war, people are going to have war. And war is mentioned in the Bible, as is often the case in Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, simply because it's documenting history and what took place, but also that there are spiritual realities that are happening and are caused by and maybe causing the physical, real, and historical events that we observe in the world. And the Bible wants to bring light to that, that in the midst of war and chaos, God is present, that God doesn't stop Cain from killing Abel. But it's crazy that God's gracious with Cain. It's crazy that, that he doesn't kill Cain right then and there, that he allows him to still live, but to be a vagabond. When then you think, what happens to Abel? And I think this is another reality of the Bible, not that it's an escape or escapism from the reality of life, but the reality of the Bible is that physical death isn't the end, 
And I think from this side of eternity, physical death and unjust killing looks like the worst thing in the world. But Jesus himself says, don't fear anyone that can kill the body. Fear him who can cast the body and the soul into eternal damnation, which is hell. And so in the final analysis of things, in the killing of Cain and Abel, I would still rather be Abel than Cain. Now, it suck, and it's not fair, yet. Because the Bible also promises that all things will be made fair one day. That every tear will be wiped away. That everything used for war, every sword, probably every gun, every nuclear weapon, will be turned into means of production. Right? Swords will be turned into plowshares. They'll be turned into something to produce and create and sustain life. I don't know what that means, but it's in there. The Bible recognizes the reality of war. The Bible commands its followers to stand up for freedom and justice for the innocent, especially orphans and widows, who all cultures treated as trash, by the way, save for Jewish people and later on Christians. Which is another interesting reality, I think, and, and I'll wind this episode down because at this point I'm kind of just thinking through it <laughs> with the record button pressed. But the Bible also commands Christians to turn the other cheek. So I would almost argue that if there's any kind of biblically justified war, it's war that defends children, widows, and women. Because if someone takes from you, the Bible says to turn the other cheek. If someone robs from you, it doesn't say to go seek vengeance. The Bible says vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. You turn the other cheek. Maybe that's why Christians are such easy targets for persecution. I don't know. Maybe. But let me know what you think. Look into the pagan nations. Look into their practices. They were pretty wicked and cruel, and they had hundreds and hundreds of years to repent. And, and we see one repent, Nineveh, when the prophet Jonah goes to Nineveh. Nineveh's pretty wicked. And there's actually lots of archaeological information. You can look it up on YouTube. There's some in museums in England and some in museums in Washington, D.C., where you can see actual carvings that have been translated to describe what the Ninevites were like. They were very wicked, but they repented once and then turned back to their wickedness. And after God gave them more hundreds of years to repent, he finally wiped them out. So I encourage you, look into it. There are comprehensive lists online of every time that God commands his people to take a life. Look into all of those. See if it's justified or not. Put God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis would say. Put him on the trial. Take him to court. See if he's still innocent. There's a lot more than I can cover in the short length that this podcast is intended to be. But so far, in my analysis of things, God is innocent. God does not like war. God does not command war for the sake of weeding out the infidels. But I do think God condones war for the sake of standing up for the innocent, for the sake of defending those that are defenseless and fighting for freedom. So with that, as always, thank you so much for listening and I hope you've enjoyed the show.